And now, the end is near. It's the final podcast of the, wait a minute, let me think, 2018-2019 season of the exactly. RSP. <laughs> and we're waiting to see if the network's going to pick us up for another season next year. <laughs> In the meantime, join us today for the season finale. Today brought to you by Benjamin Marcus and Asma Udin. And it's entitled, When Islam is Not a Religion. Have it. Hello, Religious Studies Project listeners. My name is Ben Marcus, and I'm really pleased to be here today with Asma Udin. Welcome, Asma. Thank you. Asma Udin is the fellow with the Initiative on Security and Religious Freedom at the UCLA Berkeley Center for International Relations. She is also a Berkeley Center Research Fellow and a Senior Scholar at the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute. Udine previously served as counsel with Beckett, a nonprofit law firm specializing in U.S. and international religious freedom cases, and was director of strategy for the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom, a nonprofit engaged in religious liberty in Muslim-majority and Muslim-minority contexts. She is widely published by law reviews, university presses, and national and international newspapers. She is also an expert advisor on religious liberty to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. In addition to her expertise on religious liberty, Yudin writes and speaks on gender and Islam, and she is founding editor-in-chief of altmuslima.com. She graduated from the University of Chicago Law School, where she was a staff editor at the University of Chicago Law Review. And we're here with Asma today because she just wrote uh, an excellent new book that I've had the chance to get a sneak preview of, which is titled When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom, out on July 6th and available for pre-order now. So I'm excited to have Asma here today to talk about that book. And I want to start off with a broad question that really is the the context for the book that you're writing, which is, was there a specific moment or experience that alerted you to the fact that people are seriously arguing that Islam is not a religion? There was. Um, and thank you, Ben, for having me here. It was in 2010, I was still at the Beckett Fund, and I was working on a case in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, involving the Islamic Center of Murfreesboro and its attempt to build a new facility. As is very common with Muslim communities across the U.S., the community in Murfreesboro had outgrown its space numerous times and was tired of moving from apartment to garage to storefront and decided that it needed a permanent spot, something that was big and could accommodate them and their their growing congregation um, over the course of many years. And Given the existing relationships that the Muslims of Murfreesboro had with others in that community, they were totally caught by surprise when in the course of the construction of this building, uh, their, uh, the construction site and much of the construction material was actually set on fire. And those, and those flames, you know, as they were sort of eating up this, the site and this, these materials, those are really sort of like the opening scene of my book because it was in that moment where there were these very sort of clear signs that there was going to be real tension. And in geogra- and sort of like in terms of chronologically speaking, the timing is important because this incident happened pretty much on the heels of the of the Park 51 dispute that has sort of erupted and taken over uh, both New York City and national headlines dealing with a mosque project or a, a project that was deemed to be a mosque was actually a cultural community center um, in New York. And so the two incidences are linked in terms of uh, the substance and the timing, but what a... 
but the argument in Murfreesboro was clearer than it had come out in the animosity against the Park 51 building in that in the Murfreesboro case, it was actually argued in court over the course of a six-day hearing, um, and which is, which is a significant fact because the judge didn't stop the questioning. Right. It went on. Typically, if, if a lawyer gets out of line, the judge shuts it down. Mm. But in this case, it was allowed to go forward. And in the course of that six-day hearing, it was argued very explicitly – and there's always there's been a long time where these arguments have implicitly made the argument that Islam is not a religion, but those actual words were stated in court, uh, and the argument was essentially that all the different protections that houses of worship get under the law uh, do not apply in that case because Islam is not a religion. And what are they arguing that Islam is? What are they saying? If it's not a religion, what what can it be? It, there tends to be a number of responses to that, but the most sort of dominant uh, response is that it is a political ideology. And, you know, furthermore, a dangerous political ideology that is bent on taking over the United States, that is at odds with the U.S. Constitution, and its ultimate goal is a subversion of that Constitution. And I assume that did the judge say anything, provide any good questions that would try to undermine that argument or did the judge just let that go forward unchallenged i mean it was it was it was a number of witnesses that were questioned with um, you know really sort of outrageous questions such as you know is if a religion allows it you know is is is, is founded by a prophet that you, you know engaged in sexual relationships with an underage girl specifically a 6 year old would you con- would you call that a religion i mean these are like commissioners and various like mm. government officials sitting on the stand being asked to to answer these sorts of questions wow wow so what do you find most alarming about this move to redefine islam as something other than a religion what have been some of the tangible repercussions or consequences of this yeah, I think the conversation on Islamophobia has been going pretty strong for a long time. A lot of scholars and activists have noticed this trend. And the, what I noticed when I set out to write this book was that the com- the conversation is almost exclusively based on what the media and what politicians are saying, uh, which, is, which is very important, obviously, because of the impact that both of those players have on our society. But nobody was really looking at the effect of this rhetoric on constitutional rights. And to the extent that it, there, that sort of bridge was being made to tangible results, it was almost always like in light of national security policy and questions of immigration and detention. Uh, but, but it was a little odd for me, actually, that Muslims as a religious community, that there, that conversation wasn't happening through a religious liberty lens, which I actually get into in the book, actually, to the extent that that, that that framing in itself is another way of essentially saying that Islam is not a religion. I mean, you keep, if you keep talking about it in some other terms and not as a religious liberty issue, you're almost implying that the you know the religion isn't the proper lens to be looking at this through. And so when I set out to write this book, it was really coming from my background as somebody who's a lawyer and writer focused on religious liberty in the U.S. Uh, and abroad. And wanting to change that conversation a little and turn the focus a bit to uh, the concrete effects on religious freedom. And and which is what I spend the entire book on looking at is the various ways that the Islam is not a religion argument comes up. Sometimes it's very explicit. Sometimes it's implicit, but 
but in all cases, you know, it's very obvious. And the and then I have several chapters, each dedicated to a different area of religious exercise, where this argument has come into play to diminish uh, legal rights for American Muslims under uh, the the U.S. Constitution. That's so interesting. I wonder if you've seen any changes in the strategies of lawyers or legal scholars who are advocates for the Muslim community. Are they starting to add in legal language protecting the rights of Muslims that are not just based on the First Amendment, but based on other laws or legal precedent in their court cases? Are they drawing on 14th Amendment or other laws or or statutes? Yeah, I mean, I haven't done a full survey of actual briefs filed. It's more so which are briefs being filed at all type thing. But I did see some legal literature, academic literature, where Muslim writers were arguing that uh, it, that Islam and, and protections for Muslims needs to be defended under a, a sort of the racial discrimination elements of the Equal Protection Clause. Hmm. And in some cases, the argument went so far as to say that it should be used instead of uh, hmm. religious liberty arguments because it more accurately captures what's going on. And that was, again, I mean, this was something that I read very early on in my research, which, again, was very alarming for me because— uh, it wasn't just that there was a failure to understand these issues, but it was an actual concerted effort to uh, to diminish the importance of that. So again, it's sort of like this move within the community. It's not just outsiders right. who yeah. are saying this, but now it's like a move within the community being like, yeah, I think a better way to think about what we're going through is racial discrimination, and let's advocate for it for the, that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that in itself opens... I mean, I think the racialization of Muslims is, is a reality. I think right. that's a, that, that is a phenomenon. But when you begin to say that it is racial instead of, or that the racial element is more important, then then you're creating exactly the space that these other people who want to diminish the, re- the religious status of Islam, like you're giving them that opening. Right. And that's worrying. Yeah, it's fascinating that the discourse by those who are antagonistic towards or attacking the rights of Muslims has actually changed to a certain extent the legal strategy of Muslims or their their allies in courts to move from the religious liberty lens to the race-based discrimination lens or maybe a combination of those two things. Yeah, I mean again, I haven't that was an that was advocacy that I saw in the academic literature. Mm-hmm. In terms of the actual legal advocacy, I think for me it's that's less of a current problem. In its explicit form, but I think that this idea of Muslims as racial or ethnic minorities uh, or something more akin to that as opposed to religious minority is showing up just in the types of issues that are being litigated to begin with. Right. And so coming from a, a background where I saw very sort of expansive uh, advocacy for religious liberty on behalf of you know, conservative Christians and Jews and a wide array of other um, religious groups in the U.S., that expansiveness, I think, is very much missing in the Muslim legal advocacy space. It's like, even, you know, with an NYPD surveillance case, it was just like the the argument there in terms of proving animus was almost entirely based on, like, trying to prove intentional discrimination. And it's like, guess, and I tried advising that group that you can actually prove discrimination without proving that there's exact, very explicit intentional discrimination. There's, mm. like, a wide array of ways to prove that there was systemic different, uh, you know, sort of differential treatment in a very systemic way. It could be something that's not on its face discriminatory, but applied in a particular way. Right. And and I, that, that resistance, or I guess uh, the narrow sort of lens on what constitutes religious discrimination, I think is not something that's 
limited to Muslims, but I think it's part of just sort of the, the broader politi- political alliance that they're, that they're, they've been welcomed into that wants to sort of think of religious liberty in very limited terms, whereas many people on the conservative side would argue for religious liberty much more broadly. And so I think there's like all those sort of political elements mixed in as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. And are you seeing it show up in the courts? So could you tell us a little bit more about how your work ties into the argument that courts are biased against Muslims, that somehow religious freedom is for Christians only. This is something that's come up with a few of the Supreme Court cases that were decided just in the last year, that religious freedom laws are only really being applied to protect Christians and not Muslims or other religious minorities. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I think that more extreme version of that statement, this idea, as you stated, the New York Times perfectly sort of encapsulated that in its the editorial board of the New York Times put out a piece about a month ago with the, with the title was is religious freedom for Christians only and I think that that's an extreme version of what I'm looking at I don't think that it, that that the bias is that extreme and I definitely don't think that's the case with the US Supreme Court do I think that there is some problematic bias and there's some dynamics that need to be looked at uh, and questioned more more you know, more closely, yes, uh, there there is evidence, there's actual statistical evidence that a number of different researchers have put together looking at religious liberty cases brought under a wide array of you know legal bases, whether it be the Free Exercise Clause, uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and so on. And looking at these cases over the course of, like one study, for instance, looked at it over the course of a decade and found that the that Muslims were the least likely have their religious liberty claims resolved in their favor. Uh-huh. I think the only one that was competitive with that was the black separatist sex. Hmm. Um, and then, and then the, so there's a number of studies looking at that and bringing, bringing this issue to the fore. And these researchers then also go take the step of trying to figure out why, like what's going on, right? Because when it comes to legal cases and the resolution, there could be a number of different things going on. It could just be, for instance, that the many of Muslim claims are for Muslim prisoners and Muslim prisoners are, uh, prisoners generally are notorious for bringing frivolous claims. So is that what's going on? Well, no, because if it was frivolous, it would have been dealt with much before a judge actually got to writing an opinion, deciding a case. Right. And so, uh, for instance, a study that I discuss um, in some detail in the book is one by um, Gregory Sisk and Michael Heise, and uh, they go through a number of explanations of what they think, and they and explain why none of why they aren't the right one, the right explanation, and they finally conclude that it's it's bias. It's just it's a bias that a lot of judges probably don't even realize that they have, but they, as human beings living in a society that's sort of saturated with this are essentially being uh, affected by what's going on outside the courtroom in terms of how they're viewing the Muslim claimant in front of them. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help, um, 
either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website. It would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. And so there's that empirical evidence. Um, And then in terms of the type of thing that the New York Times was seizing on, I think it's significant that it is the New York Times and it's the editorial board because it's really reflecting, I think, what many Americans are feeling in light of more recent decisions. I think that contrast that we saw this past summer between the Supreme Court's, uh, the way it dealt with animus, religious animus, or anti-religious animus in the first, uh, the Masterpiece case. And there was a lot made of what the commissioners and the Colorado Human Rights Commission had said about uh, Jack Phillips' Christian beliefs or religious beliefs specifically. And that was enough to essentially sort of hold in favor of the baker. And then three weeks later, you have the travel ban case where it's there's just way more evidence, animus, and it's like the president of the United States who is engaging in this. And it was just sort of deemed an issue by the majority that wasn't relevant. And th- there are all kinds of other complicated factors here, right? It's not just a, a state commissioner. It's the president. And the president comes with all kinds of special right. privileges. But many Americans – and it's also the fact that the dissent in that case disagreed and, and said that, right. well, I don't think that that's the way law should really be interpreted in this particular case. And so there's that plausible legal, legal argument um, for why anima should have played a bigger role. But then that contrast really, I think – left a lot of Americans seriously wondering about the sort of impartiality of our of our justice system. And then it came again to the fore in uh, in, in February, just about a month ago, when we dealt with a, uh, the case involving a Muslim inmate, uh, who, a death row inmate, who wanted an imam with him in the execution chamber and was told that he couldn't have him there with him because the only clergyman allowed in there was one on staff, and the, one, the only one on staff was a Christian clergyman. And so, again, it was just, I think, that especially because the facts of that case are just so, like, heartbreaking. It's, like, yeah. your final moments. And the fact that it wasn't just, like, no clergymen are available. I think Alabama has actually moved to that position now, which I think is is bad for other reasons. But it was like, well, if you happen to be Christian, you'll get him. Yeah, right. right. And so, I think we're consistently seeing this. Uh, and, of course, there's the, the, the bigger looming question of the how partisan the Supreme Court is, right? And we saw that blow up with the the Kavanaugh right. hearings. So you've outlined so many challenges to trying to help the public understand the nuances of this issue. Obviously, there are compelling empirical evidence that you mentioned from different scholars who've been researching the success of religious liberty claims by different religious groups. You've talked about public understanding of how the Supreme Court and other courts have interpreted the First Amendment, uh, the New York Times editorial board piece. So with this very loud media landscape where people are talking about this issue in very polarizing ways, what have you found has been successful when you're talking about Muslims and religious liberty when you're trying to reach different audiences and especially audiences that might be hostile or questioning the, the research and evidence that you present in your book, has it been empirical evidence is, is really helpful? Have you found personal narrative? I know in your book, you weave in some of your own personal narrative with your family growing up in Florida, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. So what has been successful or do you change your 
tactics or strategies when you're speaking to different audiences? So in terms of the whether or not this is successful, uh, I think that's a question that remains to be seen, you know, once the book comes out and I use it as a sort of launching pad for conversation and real engagement, which is what, are, what I'm hoping to do with it. But in you know, I think you raise an important question. I think that's what I was trying to also get at when I said that this the framing of the New York Times editorial editorial board, and I, and I also understand that it's about like getting a compelling title. But you know, I find I made it a point to say that I thought it was more extreme than it needed to be, and part of that is sort of is just sort of forks into how I, I wrote this book to begin with, right? I, I just made it a I, I was a concerted, it was actually a, a struggle to write about anti-Muslim issues in the U.S. and not to fall into the type of tone and rhetoric that tends to dominate the space. Mm. I'm not actually sure that I've seen a book that really gets into the question of Islamophobia and does it in a way that tries to make peace and reconcile with the, the people who are engaging this rhetoric. And that ultimately is what I think is why a lot of this literature just isn't having an impact. It's not just, I don't think it's enough just to kind of like use it to to hammer other Americans, I think the point is, okay, I, I need to articulate what's actually happening, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, sugarcoat it, but I'm also not going to use it to make assumptions about, about certain, certain types of assumptions that I think are probably a little bit too common now, which is this idea that the person making these arguments is either inherently dumb or bigoted. Bigoted is something that we hear uh, a lot. And I try to stay away from the word, because I, I think it turns people off, right? It turns it turns the, the precise people that you need to reach. They just it makes them uninterested and puts and, and makes them put you in a particular box. And so I try to the extent possible to use language that shows that that to some extent I, under, I understand their their concerns and I see them as another human being who is motivated by things that. A lot of human beings are, are concerned about, and a huge one that I keep hearing about is this idea of, of of security and the way that Muslims are having portrayed in the circles and with the leaders that they listen to as a threat to that security of of to them, to their families, and to their and to their country. And the part of my effort here in humanizing it is like, well, guess what? Like, I feel that too because I am also human, right? And so it's just trying to explain that. A, I can. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put you down for your concerns, but I'm also gonna explain to you how I have those same concerns. And yet, even with those same concerns, I don't think that that justifies or requires that we limit the rights of Muslims or or anyone else. So, you know, in terms of some of the people, I mean, to the extent that we can measure success, I think some of the people from that sort of interact with that group who have read the manuscript feel that that I've done that well. So it remains to be seen. Yeah. And to follow up on the question of audience, when you were writing it, did you envision that you were trying to robe the choir, you know, feed the choir? Are you preaching to the choir intentionally so that they have the tools that they need to continue to sing out loud, to use the metaphor too long, uh, to say that, you know, Islam is a religion, here are resources that I found from this book that help me make that argument? Or are you trying to convert other people? Are you trying to reach an audience that already disagrees with you or perhaps doesn't quite know and you're trying to bring them over to to your understanding of things. Well, the funny thing with the book is that I sort of take aim in my sort of very civil calm way, you know, across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. So that the the 
roughly the last half of the book really looks at the way that I think that liberal allies of the Muslim community are in their own ways turning it into something that's not a religion and why I think that this is really problematic. And so, I, you know, the question really is, you know, will I have any friends after the book? <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, you know, you, the way you phrased the question was interesting because you said, are you preaching to the choir and trying to give them the tools to make the argument that Islam is a religion? And it's interesting because when I, I've written about the the book topic in mainstream news outlets, uh, the, the New York Times, and more recently, the Washington Post. And a lot of people do kind of get caught up in that, like this question of like, well, is Islam a religion or is it not a religion? How do we define religion? Is, is you know, is the, the, the dominant frame here, like the Protestant conception of what religion is? And that's, is that the core of all this? And I actually don't get it, get into that. I sort of mentioned that in the introduction is like, yeah, I get that that's going on, but that's not relevant. Like this book is not this philosophical, you know, deep dive into like what, constitutes a religion. I think that's that sort of thing is important. I think a lot of other people have done that. I think it'd be interesting to look at that again in light of sort of modern political uh, debates. But it's more so, okay, I'm talking about the law and the law has its own way of figuring out what's a religion for purposes of protection under the U.S. Constitution. And that really is the only definition that, that matters when it comes to your legal rights, right? And so there's various philosophical um, definitions that have been adopted by the courts. But again, the relevance is only to the extent that it's been adopted by a court. Right. That's so interesting. Do you think that there's a disconnect between conversations in re religious studies as a field about what religion is and in the legal field about what religion is? Are the courts listening to religious studies scholars when they're trying to make sense of what constitutes a religion and what doesn't? Or is it its own tradition and they're just referring back to their own tradition and not really in conversation with religious studies scholars? Well, again, I mean, the, the currently it's Paul Tillich's uh, definition of religion that has really and – and the U.S. Supreme Court has never defined religion. It's it's But the federal appellate courts have. And so – and there isn't like this one agreed-upon definition in – the legal world. Uh, but per for purposes of actual legal protections, they understand there is an understanding by the courts that whatever the definition may be, it has to be pretty broad. Mm -hmm. And that judges are not in the best position to be defining sort of ph philosophical parameters of what constitutes religion. So to, to the extent that they can turn to philosophers and religious um you know, religion scholars to have the terminology and to help them figure that figure out some sort of way to articulate this. They do that, but they're more sort of concerned about how do we sort of capture what we're trying to protect without necessarily creating too strict of a boundary, because ultimately this is about constitutional protections and we have to, and so the emphasis really tends to be on what judges can and cannot do. We can't interfere with the questions of religious doctrine, the importance, whether certain th something is important to a religion or central to a religion, because it doesn't matter. It could be the most or peripheral element of your religion, but it still gets protected. And so, and you know, that's, that's really interesting. Also, if you start tying it back to the discourse around Islam is not a religion, because that a lot of that discourse tends to be, well, Islam is not just a religion or, you know, or, or more specifically, as some pretty high profile people have said, only 16% of Islam is a religion. Like, uh, how do they quantify that? Well, there's, I, my sense is that it all comes from a studied um, or extensive ongoing studies done by the Center for Security, wait, what's it called? Center for the Study of Political Islam, hmm. uh, CSPI. And 
They actually apparently have gone through all the various sort of Muslim core texts and have sort of categorized what they think constitutes religion versus politics. And based on this categorization, have come up with the 16% number. <laughs> and of course, it's like, you know, it, the fact that outsiders are sitting there kind of parsing through this way, coming up with their own definitions of where religion ceases to be religion and politics starts it really kind of shows like just how a how ridiculous the process is um just purely from like an intellectual perspective but then also what it leads to right right and so that's exactly the sort of thing that judges have to stay like very far away from right wow well as we wrap up do you have any thoughts about the future do you think that we're moving in a positive or a negative or a neutral direction. Are you seeing groups that are popping up that are more vocal in their defense? I don't know if defense is the right word, but their explanation that Islam, of course, is a religion. Or are you seeing more and more groups that are popping up making this argument that Islam is not a religion? Where do you think that we're heading? And I know that's a very broad question, so you can answer in the courts or just in the public uh, discourse. Do you think that there's reason for hope or a reason for some concern or both? I would say both in terms of the people who might be popping up to make the case that Islam is a religion. I think that they are not yet popping up, at least not in that f form. Um, because I think that what the book seeks to do is, is articulate the problem. And if you, and once I articulated it, lots of people were just like, yeah, I had heard that, I, you know, but I just sort of, dismissed it. Yeah. And it's really about like, don't dismiss it, focus on it. And even more recently, you know, with uh, the Australian senator uh, commenting on New Zealand mosque attacks, he put out an official statement that said Islam is not a religion and these people are not blameless, even if they are essentially, you know, being gunned down in their own house of worship, they are somehow not blameless. And again, it was just like, people are like, oh my God, this is like crazy. But it was just like, it's crazy. And then it the attention sort of diverted from it and it, and my intention was to bring it back. It's like, you've seen this before. It's happening again. It's an official statement put out by a politician in the most gruesome of circumstances. And I'm trying to direct the attention to that yeah. because you can't really take it seriously and begin to figure out a solution to it if you don't actually realize it's happening. Right. Uh, and, and if you don't realize it, has, it has, it's part of a larger concerted plan with, uh, with particular goals in mind. So, in terms of the two different camps that you mentioned, I think the part, the, the side that's saying Islam is not a religion is gaining steam. I, you know, there was a piece that I cite in the very beginning of my book, but that was written by David French, a very, pro very prominent conservative commentator and columnist for the National Review. And he says this, he's like, every time, like, I go and out there and talk to conservative audiences about religious liberty, it's like, the first question is always, does everything you just said apply to Muslims? And, and so there's plenty of evidence uh, that this is gaining ground. It's becoming a very common argument. Uh, and I think uh, it's time to sort of focus our energies in, in, in articulating proper responses to that. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that so compellingly in your book. It's really a compelling, cogent explanation of this, this line of argument that we've seen come through certain conservative circles. Uh, and then you also, as you mentioned, talk about the ways that folks across the religious, political, ideological spectrum are 
eroding the sense that Islam is a religion. So thank you for that contribution. As a reminder to our listeners, the book is out on July 6th. The title is When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. And you can pre-order it now. Thank you so much, Asma, for coming in. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Ben, for having me. Thank you so much for that interview, Ben and Asma. And, um, and I believe the listeners have already launched a social media campaign for a different ending to this season. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, you know, that is when Islam is not a religion. Um, you're going to have to wait until the next season to find out what happens when <laughs> yes. it is. It's a cliffhanger. Um, to keep people coming back, talking though of coming back, we will be back, of we course. We will indeed. Um, we're not going to tell you what the next podcast is going to be because we don't know. Yeah, we haven't recorded it. Right now. It's that simple. Well, um, there should have been, um, last week, uh, a podcast recorded, uh, last week when we were recording, um, I believe uh, at a special conference that was in Norway and also the ESR conference is at the end of June. Is it, is it happening right now? It's next week. Oh, uh, for the listener. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. it's happened already. Yeah. 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 So it's happened already. So the, the EASR has just happened and uh, we should have had a few interviews from there. Um, <laughs> exactly um so yeah but uh, use the summer period um or, or winter period if you're in the other hemisphere to maybe catch up on our back catalog over 300 episodes in there Indeed. um i know that every time I, I delve back into the archive from 2012 2013 i find um, whole new takes on things um, and you know your, about. your interests change over time as well and the things that i might have been drawn to back in 2012 and the, it might be the things that I wasn't interested in then that are now sort of drawing my eye because I'm less familiar with them or hmm. you know there's a methodology that I've got interested in in the meantime absolutely um, we've been um, calling out at the end of the episodes for the past few weeks to, to let you know that um, now's a good time to get in touch if you would like to be um, a podcaster if you would like to do some interviews for us um, we've got a, a great sort of training uh, system mm -hmm. set up now I would say that we set up last year um, interviews can be done uh, remotely or in person and we provide a whole whole bunch of training so it's a good opportunity and also also people to help us uh, edit the audio as well um, these are as well as helping out the project and you know speaking to um, senior scholars and you know, being part of this uh, really big network of people now these are you know transferable skills i believe is the language that's used these days um in terms of you know recording podcasts editing audio these are, are useful things for you to learn so you know in return you'll uh, get our i hate to say expertise but our experience in these <laughs> subjects um in return exactly. um yeah so without further well, ado uh, before we go we should say thank let's say thanks to all the team from this year well, I don't know if we've been very good at saying that this year. Well, we haven't, and and you'll hear their their names in the the play out, exactly. um, lest we start to list names. That's right. Yeah, but, forget. But, but um, <laughs> we can never we can never thank them enough. It's uh, although you hear Chris and I's voice every week, it's it's those people um, editing the podcasts, editing the responses, recording the interviews, taking part in the interviews. Doing the ops digest, disseminating media, things. All of yeah. that stuff is the stuff that brings you the RSP. So thanks to all of you from Chris and myself. And thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. 
The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.